This is The Careful Photograph. I'm your host, Tara Krynak. In this first episode, I speak with Mercedes Dormy about her photograph from the series Earth the Same as Heaven. You can see the photograph and learn more about Mercedes' practice on our website, thecarefulphotograph.com, or at The Careful Photograph on Instagram. Mercedes is a Los Angeles-based artist who, quote, calls on her Tongva ancestry to engage the problematics of invisibility and ideas of cultural construction, end quote. Tongva are an indigenous people whose land once covered most of Southern California, including L.A., where Mercedes is now based. And as a reminder, I'm podcasting from my home in Claremont, California, which was also once Tongva land. We recorded the episode last week, and as I have had some time to reflect on the conversation, I'd like to open with a reflection on what Mercedes calls the problematics of invisibility. So a few years ago, I ran a lecture series and course titled Unsettled Landscapes, and the idea behind both was to reconsider questions related to landscape, settler colonialism, and the American West. And so with that in mind, I'd invited a number of Indigenous and non-Indigenous speakers. People like Natalie Diaz, for example, Edgar Heap of Birds. But the final visitor I'd invited was a prominent veteran of the second wave feminist movement as curator and critic, and had recently focused her attention more to questions of ecology and climate change. During her remarks, she said that she once used to count the number of women artists in any given show, but no longer felt it necessary. Then she went on to say that there really were no women landscape photographers anyway. To repeat, I had invited her to speak and was sitting directly in front of her at the time. At the dinner I'd organized afterward, I overheard this same speaker turn to the only older white man at the table and ask him which photographer she should be looking at right now. I held my tongue. Fast forward to another scene, another anecdote. This one at a professional conference I attended right before the pandemic. When another white curator from a high-profile academic institution asked a panel of black photographers, quote, where are the black landscape photographers? In each case, I wanted to scream right here, right in front of you. The problematics of invisibility and not-so-subtle racism were on full display in both cases. But what's to be done? How to counteract this invisibility with the visible? And what if that passage from invisibility to visibility also requires a radical change, an expansion, maybe a decolonization of how we think land looks, of how we think a landscape should look, of what we think a landscape photographer looks like. As you'll hear in the conversation that follows, Mercedes Doremi is careful about the language she uses to describe her use of the camera and what it can accomplish how it can push against the tropes of what we have been trained to expect of landscape photography and the people who make it. We begin each episode of The Careful Photograph with a close discussion of a single image, in this case, one that works against the tropes of landscape photography, diverging from them in form and format, but also in intention. In her work, I sense rejection, 
of the colonial gaze and its empowering formal cliches, coupled with a powerful affirmation of new possibilities. And with this, here is my conversation with Mercedes. I'm here today with Mercedes Dorame, and we are going to talk about her photograph from the series, Earth the Same as Heaven. And Mercedes, could you pronounce the second part of that title? So um, a lot of my titles I've been translating into Tongva, one, because I'm uh, relearning it or learning mm. it. I guess I should say mm-hmm. um, I'm in Tongva language classes. And mm-hmm. for me, it's kind of a way to point to some of the unknown that exists in my work mm-hmm. and this kind of cu- hopefully uh, spike curiosity, but the earth, the same as heaven is a I love that. Can you say that one more time? Sure. Okay. I am here today to talk about earth, the same as heaven in the beginning was fox and cinnamon. And I'm assuming that's also part of the title of the work. Because the photograph that we're looking at is on your website. And if you scroll down, it's like the maybe the 10th photograph in the series. And I'm really, I was really drawn to this because there are so many poetic echoes in this particular photograph. And so I think I just want to first for our listeners, because this is an audio podcast and we're talking about something so visual as a photograph. First, I want to get into description and just talk about the visual aspects of this photograph. And then we'll talk a little bit about maybe how you made this photograph. Could you describe this photograph to us in detail? Sure. So it's outdoors. The main kind of plane of the photograph is a huge boulder Mm. and inserted kind of into that boulder is a grinding stone. So we might think of this as a matate um, if you were thinking of a smaller scale, but this is actually a huge boulder with a, a grinding bowl made into it. And so this is like a place where acorns or other food material would have been ground up. So there's that kind of one. And then right next to the kind of bowl made into the boulder, there's an actual other matate, which was my grandmother's. Um, Inside that bowl, there's some um, powder, Mm -hmm. which is ochre, Mm -hmm. which is a mineral, Mm -hmm. kind of this orangey mineral. Mm -hmm. And then around that, there's these oak leaves. Mm -hmm. And part of the oak leaves are covered in this powder. Mm -hmm. Now, the powder in this is maybe, uh, it's actually cinnamon because I I talk about this exchange of cinnamon and ochre and and kind of these ceremonial materials and what that means. Mm -hmm. Um, So on the the oak leaves is the same sort of uh, visually the same powder, but it's actually cinnamon. A pattern of those oak leaves are made in reverse, kind of on the north and south poles of this around the, the grinding bowl in the, the boulder. And then the last element that I feel like is really important is there's actually water filling the bowl made within the boulder. And this is important because this is actually located next to a freshwater spring in Los Angeles. So it's very close to a water source. As a photographer, I'm really drawn to the way that you've used focus in this image. It seems like a very shallow depth of field where 
my eye is continuously drawn to the center, which would be the grinding stone area with the water. I keep looking at the water and seeing also reflections of the sky. Even though I'm looking down, I feel like I can also see upward. You know, the the top of the photograph is slightly out of focus, but you can, when you your eye is drawn down, um, I'm I'm constantly coming back to the center because of the way that my eye is drawn to this really actually vivid color that is made from the, it's cinnamon and red ochre. Um, and that color is just so amazing. And it reminds me of, you know, fall colors. And I'm just so drawn to the, the tactile qualities, the ways that the photograph allows me almost to imagine these materials in a very, in relation to my body. Could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I mean, you know, to start with the kind of plane of focus. Mm, yeah, on, yeah. And I, I, I like, you know, kind of when I use the camera, it's one of these kind of tools you have to really point the viewer into places, right? It's something that when you're looking in the world, your eye naturally does, right? Yes. We have aperture within our iris and there's like depth of field, like these, these things exist, but your brain kind of compensates for it and puts it all together. Whereas the camera doesn't, I mean, unless you're talking like HDR, but that's a whole different thing. I like that it doesn't. I like that I can use this mechanism to really focus in on a, on a point. Um, and, and some of that is about uh, controlling narrative, mm -hmm. about controlling focus, directing people. It's a pretty tight um, crop, you know, when I'm, too. Like the way you're <laughs> using the crop here is really interesting. Yeah. I mean, because it's, it's a bit disorienting. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I, I know that um, you also can play with scale mm. using the camera, right? There's this kind of disorienting moment. And so playing with that scale, I also like to engage with. For me, the interaction with objects that I'm working with is really important. Like I'm handling them. I'm like, I filled this boulder with water. Like it wasn't there when I got there. So there's certain kind of interactions I'm having in a tactile way. You know, laying the cinnamon out is a very, um, you know, careful process and kind of, I want that feeling to come through. I like that there's different textures and different um um, and then, like you said, these bowls or these these surfaces that are also kind of have this smooth texture. And to me, I love that because that implies use and wear, right? So when you find stones, the way you differentiate a, a, a stone that might have been used by people as a tool versus a stone that is maybe just ground down by the river is wear pattern. And so, I, you know, I always think about that. And, and I love also that you know, the, the stones hold wear from water as well. So it's not about like, like hierarchical putting the, the value on human wear, mm -hmm. but also kind of this natural wear that happens, but that, you know, it implies age and time passing and repetition and all these mm -hmm. kind of moments really kind of imbued in these objects because of that repetition and wear and experience. There's so much to do with when you talk about the passage of time and also I'm relating that to what you said about disorientation. There's something 
about the layers of time that are held within the boulder itself. I just imagine that if wind blew, <laughs> those marks would just disappear. You know, thinking about the photograph and its relationship to time and this as capturing all of these sort of layers of time, both the temporal nature of the the imprint of the leaves and that the leaf is just so delicately laid there. I mean, there's something that seems temporal, but also so grounded at the same time. I definitely, you know, it brings up another reason why I work with the camera and making photographs because it is about this um, taking a moment um, where I've interacted with the space. Mm-hmm. And one one layer for that of me is these spaces are not, um, it's, it's kind of these spaces that I get access to, but it's always temporary. Mm. So, you know, there are these cultural spaces um, that have family memory like this is where my grandfather used to go to get water you know so he knew it because of his ancestry as, as a Tonga person and kind of this knowledge it's passed down um but it's somebody else's property now you know well that's a whole other conversation for me using the camera and using the photograph is a way of like a, making this permanent record or this permanent coding as a space mm-hmm. in a way that reflects this cultural heritage um and this memory, you know, I went there with my father. He's the one who took me there because his father told him about mm-hmm. it. Um, and so there's kind of this record making that's permanent, even though my my access physically in like my body real time is only temporary. Yeah, I love that the camera for you then becomes a way to kind of reclaim this space as your own. I'm actually really curious about um what it took to make this photograph. So you've described these as interventions. You could even maybe relate them to the history of land art. And so much of that history is is about these huge interventions, (laughs) these uh, (laughs) obtrusive, um, almost violent interventions. Whereas this this is so humble, I think is the word that you also use. I mean, I often refer to my work in the landscape as a collaboration with the landscape. (laughs) So I look at it in that I don't go to these spaces having a fixed idea of what an image will look like when I'm done. It's not, I don't um, go in with these kind of grand ideas of of exactly what things will look like at the end. I don't know. Um, And so for me, a lot about being in these spaces is about being receptive to what's there with my eyes, with my kind of intention, with my even feeling. So in the actual making of the photograph, I'm really intentional about the objects and materials I use because they're always significant and they always hold meaning. But how they actually end up being arranged or kind of how it comes out is always a bit of a surprise or a bit of a process. Um, And so there's that element of how I approach making work. So there's a certain amount of pressure of, you know, I have this amount of time. I don't exactly know what's going to come out of that. And just remaining open to being like, okay, here we go. Um, Kind of that. I have to do something with this now because I I won't have this space any longer. You know, there there is that pressure. I can I can imagine that as an artist who just thinking about not being able to go back. 
Yeah. And then, you know, the other thing that brings up for me too, um, when you talk about, I mean, I definitely agree that I, I use the photograph as a way of reclaiming spaces. And when I think about, you know, going, going to this place with my father, knowing this history and seeing this, uh, like my father took me there because of this Vogue and the spring kind of both these things together. And I like to point my camera also to spaces that kind of have this inescapable human presence of the Tongva people because a lot of times when you think about Los Angeles and how it is visually coded and how it um, is understood culturally, you know, like Hollywood and, you know, these kind of visuals (laughs) that aren't exactly pointing to this indigenous legacy, um, this kind of continued presence in this place. And so I really love pointing to these kind of inescapable moments of presence. You know, a lot of our our village sites were around water springs, right? Because we need water, you know? Um, So you kind of can't escape that connection because we still hold that connection. It kind of brings this sometimes abstract presence into a current vision, a current kind of consciousness of of presence. How does this photograph look forward? Um, Well, it's interesting because... You know, the title is Well of Moon and Sky. See, I was an undergrad lit major. And so words become really important to me in titling or how I write or how I uh, edit. And when I think about making this title, it was, you know, this well of the sky. Like, what does that mean? Like, it, it's kind of this dor- disoriented looking, like you mentioned before, where you're looking down to see up. Yeah, and what does yeah. that mean? And what is it, what is our relationship to looking up? And a lot of the work I've done recently is around that concept. I've somehow, you know, gotten interested in the conversation around monuments and what that means and what do we look up to. And so for me, it, it kind of gets into this world, this kind of world making where there are these other worlds to kind of ex- uh, imagine. And um you know, so it, it is a little bit about that kind of looking up, acknowledging the sky, but then it, it points you back down because you're always grounded into mm. the, the the land, the landscape, the earth. And, and part of being grounded in the landscape is recognizing where you are, you know, who the original caretakers of the spaces are. Um, how do we interact with like what is our imprint in that space? It's almost like remembering and reimagining at the same time. Right. I wanted to ask you more about that, this idea of looking forward as an imagining. And I want to relate it, though, to this photograph because it it's also a still life. It's also, you could think of it as a family portrait. You could think of it as being about deep time, about all of these things. It's, it does so much, you know, and I, I wondered about this idea of imagining, imagining or reimagining a past and also at the same time looking towards the future, because they, they seem to be two separate acts, but actually what you're talking about is this idea of the past and the future and imagining is almost being one in the same. So um, could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, even just, you know, 
present in the image are these it's like multi-generational for me like there's this larger boulder right the object itself that it has a certain age Mm -hmm. you know quite old then you have this kind of earlier imprint right so that's a earlier generation and then you have kind of my grandmother which is like echoing my grandfather who actually went to this place and her kind of tool which was used by my father given to me you know my father is there with me um, while I'm making it and so there's this multi-generational presence Mm. even just in the objects and for me where I feel my imprint is happening is really in this this the the imprints between the oak leaves and the cinnamon and those two things also have you know kind of an age and time and so for me i think that you know this conversation comes up around well, why are you referencing the past or is it just history or is it just educational or didactic and I often try to get at the point of your immediate and further back ancestors are the reason why you're literally physically located in the time and space that you are, right? So you kind of can't escape that that legacy or that history or that presence within your current experience. And so you carry that with you, whether it's acknowledged or not. Maybe it's the best way to think about it. And so for me, I think about even just within two generations of my grandparents being super secretive about their indigenous history and and culture, because it was so shameful culturally to acknowledge that Mm -hmm. and societally to acknowledge that. Um, And so I think of that shift. And so for me, part of making these images that use these objects that are tied to a family history are about almost telling my grandparents, even though they're no longer living, telling them like that it's not shameful anymore. Right. There's this empathetic connection almost that you're making through making visible. You're sort of making visible these these bodies in a way. Because I always think about how there's this almost false binary between art. And we talked a little bit about this at the front end that wasn't recorded, but thinking about this false binary between artists making work about identity that somehow has to contain or show literally a body. Here, I feel the body, your body is present. I feel the body of your ancestors are present. And yet there's also, you're pointing to this invisibility and this absence um, because you're not literally seeing a portrait um, that that you're kind of kind of coming at these histories through the landscape, and I I find that really important. I think that the ways that the body or your body, the body of your ancestors, are both absent, both present, that that they kind of hover in this space of visibility and invisibility is actually really important. Um, it's it's funny because I'm teaching a class right now called Sites of Performative Arrangement, and I'm kind of playing with this idea of, of you know, when is a, a photograph or 
um, like how, where is that kind of transformational moment where it becomes something different than just a record of the process? Yes. If that makes sense. Yes. And last week we were, I was talking about Adam and work because I mean, the body is so present in that work and it's also the landscape and this kind of returning to, and yet also creating an imprint that's an imagination of something else. Yes. Yes. That re re yeah. So, I mean, I, I definitely, um, feel like there is like, what is the human presence? And it's kind of why I, I, I also taught a class about objects kind of like in this reference that a lot of times my work is described as a still life Mm -hmm. or it gets put in that. And, and there was something about that that always made me a little bit like, uh, I don't think that's quite right. <laughs> you know, it's like it, it applies, but there was always something. For it me feels was, more active. Yeah. yeah. It's the, the arrangement, like the arrangement, the work in making. Yeah. Like it, it seems like connected to like, I don't know, painting. Right. I mean, it's, it, and this just feels almost so active in a way. Yeah. I mean, I always want to try to show the the presence like the human presence the trace of that the trace of the interaction the trace of the body without actually you know taking images of people maybe that's you know my original my how I came to photography mm-hmm. was through mm-hmm. actually the school newspaper I love that um, and at <laughs> one point <laughs> it's so polar opposite of where I am right now but I think that you know if I'm going to be totally honest that some of my work it was a reaction to that where you had to have a person in every picture yeah. and there was this idea that you you were taking this objective mm-hmm. image that you know you were just an objective of viewer and I, I would maybe argue that there's no such thing right we're always making choices about what lens you use, what camera you're using, what, how you're framing, mm-hmm. how you're editing. I mean, there's so many subjective choices that go into every single image. Yes, there is a gamut of a more observation and a more kind of arranged image. But um, for me, it was like I wanted to show that presence. I didn't want to. It's not an objective image or uh, an objective view um, or an untouched kind of view, which goes into a little bit of my thinking around how you know, landscapes were photographed um, in early photography as well, where it's like these wild, untouched spaces just waiting to be conquered. I mean, it it definitely (laughs) propelled this narrative. And I'm like, no, there were people living there, tending to these lands for, you know, thousands Mm -hmm. of years. It might look, quote unquote, wild wild or untouched to you, but that is actually not the case. Mm -hmm. And so um, these kind of vast untouched spaces like I I always and maybe that's you know partly a a push against that when I take these tight yes square um (laughs) images love the square which are not yeah I I um you know I started with it because my there's like a family legacy of photography my great uncle was a photographer my dad also is a photographer Mm -hmm. um in you know he went to Cal State Northridge in the mm-hmm. 70s and was a photo major. And so like when I first started taking a photo class, he's like, you're not going to major in that. And then he bought me a camera because he was like, you know, I know how hard this can be to kind of pursue, but he was, he's always been so supportive. But I inherited an old Rolleiflex, um, actually from each of them, which is kind of <laughs> funny. And so the, I feel like the square itself became this inherited thing. But I also like that it it turns, you know, it's this meat, this format that was often used as 
you know, portrait, Mm -hmm. you know, you think of, I don't know, Avedon or whatever. Um, Or Arvis. Arvis. Yeah, exactly. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I I like applying it to the landscape because I, in maybe a certain subtle subconscious, it is about making portraits, you Mm -hmm. know, like it, it, it kind of change shifts it from being this, um, like I said, this vast untouched space into a portrait of human imprint. Mm. I guess, I mean, I, I feel like we've covered a lot. And I think the only other thing that I maybe want to ask you, and I want to find a way to ask this, but um, is about how important biography is to this work. Like as even even for students sort of thinking about how do we look at photographs, how do we contextualize them, how do we really start to look more carefully and understand them? How do we understand you in relationship to your work? And is that important? How important is that? And how how would you like to frame that? Sure. I mean, I think that when it comes to work that's categorized in a, like, in a biographical category, mm-hmm. What that does is it sets a certain expectation, maybe stereotype. Mm-hmm. And and that's something, you know, when I really started making work that talked about the indigenous um, Tongva's ancestry in my family, I had those comments of, well, you, this doesn't look native or it, 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 yeah, didn't, exactly. it didn't show what people were expecting. Mm-hmm. And so and for me, I was always very, very careful not to show the expected in the way that one California and Tongva culture looks different than other cultures, other native cultures, because they're really different. (laughs) You know, like we want to have this idea of like native American Mm -hmm. and there's really no such thing as a universal. I mean, there are things that kind of overlap. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's not as simple as that. And so when I think about work that engages those optics, I never wanted people to look at my work and be like, oh, right, Native Native American, got it, walk away like they know everything. Um, <laughs> because I don't know everything, you know? Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was about not engaging in the conversation of just trying to give people something that they recognize. So there's that, always that kind of element. I, and I think also it's sometimes difficult because... of these categories that are placed on you like oh I'm in this show that is this group of people and I think some of that has to do with what we consider neutral right so like an artist that doesn't get this biographical category placed on it is just an artist or just a woman or just a man Mm -hmm. right and that's not the case. It's it's maybe like a, you know, Caucasian from wherever in the country woman or yes, man, right? Exactly. So we're, we kind of leave out that biographical information, but a place it on artists of color. Right. And so I think that's, there's not like an across the board um, application of this logic when it comes to how important biographical information is. Now, that being said, I do engage with this culture, my culture, I engage with some of the politics and um, issues around that. And when I was really um, in school starting, like I said, to make this work, I I grappled with that a little bit because sometimes it's seen as like, oh, well, you're just using Mm -hmm. this as an angle or something. There's a real cynical (laughs) um, approach sometimes that is taken. And I 
really started making it because of the experiences I had working on burial sites as a cultural resource consultant. And that was, well, that's like a whole different podcast conversation. (laughs) Um, But it was a really heavy, difficult um, experience that deeply affects me. And I, in a certain sense, when I really made some of my early work was responding to those experiences. And what did that mean? And so it wasn't like, hey, I have this um, thing that I get to talk about because it's in my my blood and my family. But it's like, it's literally impacted my existence, the dynamics around it, and my relationship to the land. And so how can I not talk about it? It would be disingenuous. Yes. You know, for me, I pull from what I know, and this is what I know. And so I think that sometimes with Native artists, I just read this great interview um, piece with uh, from James Luna, and it gets into this, like, concept of, like, oh, are you exploit- exploiting? And he's like, what is there to exploit? I'm talking from what I know. What else yeah. What else can I talk about? Exactly. Um, and so it's a very delicate um, thing to engage with, but I think it's it's important. And I also feel like... The other kind of thing I navigate quite a bit, which is something I'm sure people deal with, is, you know, when am I the political uh, Tongva activist and when am I the artist? <laughs> and sometimes those those two sides, I mean, I would say that they overlap, right? Yes. <laughs> but they sometimes get very blurry in what is expected of mm-hmm. me. And sometimes I'm treated much more like a cultural consultant and much less like an artist. And that's hard, you know, because... Yes, I do this work and yes, I'm I'm excited to kind of engage in those conversations, but I'd also like to be treated like an artist that is, you know, like in this conversation, we're, we're talking about the work and what it gives and what it shows. And, um, you know, I put a lot of thought and time and intention into what I make. And so I, I sometimes would like that work to be on an equal kind of right, right. <laughs> plane as, you know, me as maybe representing the Tonga people. The other advice I always give students, since this is geared towards students, is is really being aware and having a like a strong voice in what is absolutely necessary to know. You know, when this conversation comes up around writing and titling and editing and art mm-hmm. statements, it's very important to control some of that, you know, to control what is absolutely necessary. And for me, I'm always like, there will be things that are interpreted differently. There will be ideas that come out of it that are not yours. And that's okay. But what is absolutely necessary for the viewer to get? You know, it's why I title images the way I do. It's why I've gotten very intentional and um, forward about how I edit didactics and writing about my work. Yeah. Um, because it's it's a tricky conversation, especially in Native politics. And so um, where I used to kind of feel like it wasn't my place, you know, maybe somebody with a more authoritative position, it was their voice that really was important. I, you know, I had to shift and, and understand that, no, I am the expert of my work. And I love when people write about my work. And I, it's not that I don't appreciate it or want it, but I have to you know, sometimes interject in ways that are uncomfortable. And I think that people who are really trying to do the work are always open to it. I've never had an interaction where it's like, oh, this needs to change. And people are like, screw you. (laughs) I'm right. You're wrong. Like, So it's like kind of getting the confidence to to have that conversation. Yeah. I think that comes with time. Just comes with time. Yeah. Yeah. Mercedes, I think 
is there any any are there any last comments that you'd like to make or because I think we've covered no, so much yeah. <laughs> and it was wonderful. It was so great to hear you talk Thank about you. this photograph. Thank is there you. anything coming fun. up for you that I'm doing um a project with LACMA and wait for it, Snapchat. It's this virtual <laughs> monument project. Love it. <laughs> kind of figuring it out. Um, but it's this like virtual monument thing about telling these stories in Los Angeles. Cool. Thank you so much for seeing me. All right. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs> Bye. So as we ended the conversation, I asked Mercedes to give listeners, my students, and uh, uh, and myself, actually, because I think I'm actually going to do these, um, a praxis assignment, some, some exercise, some visual exercise, some creative prompt that grows out of her practice. And I thought she had a really great assignment for us, which is to pick three objects Um, And they can be objects that you live with, objects that are in your home or objects outside. I think they can be any objects that you interact with and maybe something that you interact with daily. Um, But she really wants you to be able to hold these objects and to listen to the objects and to make an arrangement then out of the objects. And this kind of holding of the objects and listening to the objects is a way of making an arrangement that is in response to the object, that the object should somehow speak to you and tell you how it should be arranged rather than the other way around, rather than you forcing some arrangement. So it's actually a pretty tricky assignment in terms of sitting with the object long enough or objects long enough to hear them, to listen to them. Um, I think this is a really good challenge and it's a, it'll be a good first praxis assignment for my class as well to, um, to start making some art in response to these conversations. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what the students come up with for this assignment. And if you are following along as a listener and would like to be part of, um, you know, the careful photograph online critique, feel free to post your response and to just tag it the careful photograph. Thank you so much for listening and hopefully I'll get better at these conversations. (laughs) Thank you.